All right, here I am joined by Gally Russell from HyperChange. And we just finished our part one of our video where we talked about um, the X holding company, trying to put all of Elon's companies into one structure to free up Elon so you can do more. And if you haven't watched that video, go ahead. I'll link it in the video description below. A fantastic um, discussion that we had. And this episode, I want to focus specifically on Bitcoin and if Tesla should put a portion of their cash reserves into Bitcoin or not. So here, Gally and I, we are at polar opposites here. Um, Gally put out a video. Um, you had Michael, Michael Saylor on your show, and he is a big proponent of Bitcoin. He's put, I think, $800 million or something of his microstrategy company's cash into Bitcoin, and he's pumping it and wanting it to go higher, obviously. And um, Gally, you're a Bitcoin holder, I know that, and a Bitcoin you know, proponent. Um, and you and you made a video, you know, suggesting a hey, Tesla should, you know, put a portion of their cash reserves into Bitcoin. So I feel like on the opposite side, I feel like all these red flags, you know, I have concerns. But I want to give you kind of the floor, just share your, you know, where you're coming from in terms of how you got the idea, how you think Tesla might benefit, and then maybe we could walk through some of the pros and cons together, and you know, come up with something. Yeah, love it. So. You know, I've, I've been a Bitcoin enthusiast since like 2013, 2014, around that is when I bought my first, I was like blogging about it for the NYU newspaper. So I've just been fascinated with this idea of programmable internet money, software eating the world. I've loved, just been a nerd about Bitcoin and to see it go from, you know, tens of billion, 10 billion market cap to half a trillion and to get all this mainstream adoption and to see how far it's come, like I've been like, wow, like I feel like a proud parent in some weird way of like, look at this little baby that grew up. Yeah, so I had Michael Saylor on and I thought, and I, you know, I saw Jack Dorsey and, and Square put a, a, like 1% of their treasury holdings into Bitcoin. They're more of a FinTech company though. So um, that made more sense. But I was just fascinated by this idea. And I've always had the opinion of like, okay, I don't want to hold fiat currency. I want to hold uh, high, you know, high growing tech stock equity, Bitcoin, better stores of value. So. I've been a huge believer of this Bitcoin store value digital gold thesis for a long time. Um, like it's better than gold and maybe it won't replace all cash, but can it be a, in this, you know, real estate stocks, uh, all this bucket of assets that we have cash is Bitcoin have a place as this programmable, programmable asset. And I like, yes. And so I'm, a, I own Bitcoin. And so then when Michael Saylor came with this idea of like, dude, we're putting our treasury in Bitcoin, Square did it. Everyone's going to do it. I love this idea. So. Obviously on my channel, I'm like a moonshot, kind of like that, like way too excited millennial shareholder guy. So I feel like that's the lens where I'm, I'm coming at this from. But like, I don't know. It's just, I think this is a fascinating idea. And when I looked more into his his comments about how fast fiat's diluting, um, I was like, wait, this makes a lot of sense. And the Bitcoin bull in me does see an inevitable world where it is really thought of as a store value asset. And a lot of companies have either Bitcoin or an asset like it on their balance sheet instead of cash. Because right now what happens is Tesla, I don't think they should be buying Bitcoin if they have what if they can spend all their money and they, they want to buy engineers, factories, batteries, all this stuff like screw Bitcoin. This is a distraction. We don't need it. It's going to be a total waste of time to push it through governance or whatever. But just the theory that Tesla in a month from now is going to have a board meeting and they're going to have 20 billion in cash. They know they can't spend and they're going to probably buy treasuries or that's going to be on the table. And now I think there's a, you know, a, a cyclical moment of where this no brainer thing to just buy treasuries and keep your money in fiat is actually getting starting to be a really dumb idea. Or that's kind of like like people are just rethinking of like, wait, this isn't a no brainer. Let's let's explore to put, all, you know, some of our assets in different stores of value. And Tesla just sold stock at 650. They diluted us. And I don't want to get watch them just keep fiat on the balance sheet for two years and have that dwindle because of inflation and the purchasing power that we just diluted our own equity for go down. So my whole take with this is like, I, 
I really love this concept of let's have Bitcoin on the table as part of the discussion of a treasury asset that we could hold on our balance sheet if we're going to need to store something. And so I thought it could be like, you know, square move 1%. Could Tesla just allow you to pay in Bitcoin on their website and then not convert all of that Bitcoin into cash? They could just really easily build up a super small Bitcoin position. Um, so I'm personally not even like totally sold on this idea, but I just think it's I, I'm sold on the fact that when the next board meeting happens about what they should do with their money, this should be considered or or Bitcoin or another thing like Bitcoin should be considered, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's kind of my angle and just just fascinated by the idea that companies will hold Bitcoin as a treasury asset on their balance sheet. Sure. Uh, what percent do you think Tesla should consider um, holding Bitcoin? What percent of their cash reserves do you think? I think 1% is a good start and just like a trial thing. And that's why I said, if you just accept Bitcoin payments and we sell 500 to a thousand cars a quarter of Bitcoin, we'll build up a $50 million position each quarter and we can get 200 million in a year and that'll be 1% of our cash. And yeah, mm -hmm. I think logistically that's the best way to do right. it. Do you think actually the board discusses this stuff? Like personally, I, f I feel like the Tesla board, like they kind of leave almost everything to, you know, Elon and Zach where it's like, hey, yeah. you know, like just you guys, like, I don't know if the board is really going this fine. I, I think I would imagine this would be more of a discussion between Elon and, and Zach Kierkorn, right? The CFO. Yeah. Right? And then telling the board. What exactly. They yeah, yeah. Just reporting yeah. to the board saying this is what we're doing. And, if they and, even and the do that. Why now, yeah. And the reason why now I think is so interesting is because now and the reason why I kind of like banging my drum on it now is because now's the time when we don't just have two billion in the bank and like we have to spend it like we don't even we're not even tesla's never even thought about what to do with their cash because they've just they've only had such a tight buffer that they can't spend but now we we have more money than we can spend and so that is the change of we actually have to think about how to store value most efficiently with that capital and so i think that is the change that is going to spark some sort of new conversations at that level yeah so i've i watched your michael saylor interview but i've also watched probably a good four or five of his, of his other interviews over the past several months. And what I've noticed is a lot of his argument is built upon a thesis or a point of view, an assumption that um, cash is losing its purchasing power at a radical pace, right? Not just a few percent a year. And from that kind of foundational argument, then he argues, A, if cash is losing a huge amount of percent of purchasing power every year, then you need to do something about your cash to save the cash, right? That's the next point. And then how do you save cash? So then the next point after that is, well, you could put into, you know, hard assets, but then it's not liquid, but then here's Bitcoin, right? As an option. So it's like, so you have these different levels of arguments he's making. Um, the, when I look at that, I go to the first argument that everything is built upon. And I feel like in every interview I've heard, he keeps on repeating this statistic that cash is losing 15% of its purchasing power. And then he takes it further and he says, in five years, right, the purchasing power of cash will be half what it is today. Meaning if you take 15% per year over five years, that's, set, that's basically a doubling, right? Or, you know, it'll be a halving. So he's projecting out that 15% for the next five years as well, making it a case, right, that you have to do something with your cash. But when I look at the numbers, like I looked at, you know, the past 10 years, I took 2010 to 2020 real estate. It's like, you know, goes up maybe 4% or something. Education cost was like between four to 5%. Like even 
healthcare costs, which is skyrocketing, it's still under 5% probably every year uh, annualized, right? And so even if, for example, housing goes up from $170,000 to $270,000 average national house, house price in 10 years, that sounds like a lot, but annualized, it's not that much. It's like, you know, 4% or something. So this concept of cash is losing 15% of purchasing power, to me, that just is so far-fetched that I'm just like, if the whole argument is based upon 15%, you know, losing purchasing power. I'm like, you lost me there at the first uh, step one. Yeah. So help well, me, so ex I can, help I me explain you, yeah, kind of this statistic. step one. Yeah. Yeah. So that statistic is the M2 money supply, which is this exactly. money that households have, I guess. And you can Google it. So it's like 15.4 to 19.4 sure. this year. So that's like the 20% rate that he's kind of quoting and it's been accelerating. And so I'm kind of in the middle of your take and his take. And this is my first question when I interrupted him, my interview is like, bro, inflation is 1%. How are you going to tell me it's 15 or 20? Like, let's let's figure this out and his thing is like they're not counting it all and just his first principles approach of the money supply is expanding and that will eventually leach into inflation and so i actually kind of really agree with that and i've separately before michael saylor have just kind of had this theory of the awakening can i keep going yeah go ahead uh, the, the awakening is what I call it, which is like people are just realizing like, wait, like I worked so hard for my money and now I'm putting it in this thing called cash that is backed by nothing that the government is just printing more of and accelerating pace. How that dilution leaks and shows in the rest of the economy, who knows? But my theory is we've already seen a massive inflation of every single tech stock. That's, you know, we already see the, the supply of all this currency go around and the government's just printing another 600 or 2000 or whatever. I think the crux of what, what the dilution has been in the past and it just all comes down to the fact that I think the fiat system is breaking and unraveling, or that's kind of my economist view. They're printing more and more at a faster, faster pace. And that 15% money to supply expansion is kind of his barometer. I don't know if that's a good stat or not, to be fair. And so kind of throwing Michael Saylor's take and stat out the window, just my personal view is like, I do feel like the inflation that's reported by the Fed is super underreported. And I feel like there's this big awakening of like, wait, like let's not hold cash. And this hundreds of trillions of dollars that's held in fiat is actually gonna slowly start cycling out to other assets as it should. And then the pace of dilution of fiat will accelerate with UBI and all these new programs. So I see this kind of unraveling of the fiat system. And that's where I see if you're holding cash, you know, who knows how fast this M2 money supply expansion hits real estate prices or hits this kind of prices or hits Tesla's supplier prices, for instance, because that's what I really care about. But it's just this idea that the pendulum is, is right now all the way that cash and treasuries are a super stable asset. But when I see this data of expanding dilution inflation, I think slowly the pendulum will swing where we don't just have a no brainer of soaring value in cash. We start to think real estate stocks, Bitcoin are better. And then as that pendulum of expectation swings, then that's when dilution starts accelerating. They have to print more and more. And so it's kind of this weird sort of apocalyptic bet that the fiat system's unraveling. And do I think there's a 1% chance that happens? Yes. So that's why I think we should put 1% of our money into Bitcoin. So I'm kind of in between you and Michael Saylor of like, I don't think it's this radical 15 to 20% dilution every year. But I think on a first principles of him watching the M2 money supply expand, accelerate, he's on point and that will slowly leach into the economy. And then that, that is why I think, you know, Square made the decision. And I think whether it's Tesla or not, I do kind of feel like a, a lot more entities will start moving in this direction. Yeah, I mean, like when people look at the M2 money supply, like I get concerned because like there's a greater kind of economic system at hand where the M2 money supply is actually just a small portion of, let's say, the total value of assets, let's say, in an economy. And so let's say you increase, 
you know, a small portion by 15%, it doesn't mean that the entire, you know, 95% or 99% or something is, is going to be decreased by that much. Meaning the, the, it's, it's more the M2 money supply effects in terms of um, valuations of other assets, but it doesn't affect it as much as, you know, in its own bubble. It, meaning it's, it's a small part of a, of a bigger economy of, value, of, of assets, Right? And that's why you can expand the, the M2 money supply by 15%, but you're not nearly going to you know, make cash lose that much purchasing power. It's going to just be a, a couple percent at, at best. Yeah. yeah. And so, and I think where I can add a little color here is I, it, I totally get what you're saying. Like 15 to 19 billion is only a piece of the economy there. Yeah. But I think like the, the fact that, okay, we know fiat's diluting, whether it's 2% or 3% a year or whatever, we know fiat's diluting. And I also think not only is the supply of fiat increasing, but the demand for fiat is decreasing. So that's how I get in between the 2% dilution and Michael says 15%. I'm in between because I think this 100 trillion, 200 trillion demand for fiat is shrinking. So we have the supply increasing and the demand shrinking. And that's the compounding effect of where I do think you could lose, you know, 8, 10, 12% of your purchasing power annually going forward. Like I think and to me, it's kind of like my I'm always ahead of the curve. I'm always way too excited about stuff. So mm. me predicting this crazy hyperinflation accelerating tailwind, I'm probably too early on that. Yeah. But I just feel that it's it's the combination of accelerating dilution with people re, with the awakening of people saying we don't want to park our money in fiat. We want real estate. We want equity. We want Bitcoin or we want whatever uh, we want crypto assets. And then that the combination of dilution and you know shrinking demand is what has fiat's true purchasing power fall off a cliff so so i get the whole thing of let's say the m2 or let's say fiat money is is increasing but i think in a sense fiat or currency is instantly exchangeable for let's say stocks or real estate whatever so it's like i don't know if it really matters the demand for the currency itself like it's i mean there is some level of that but I feel like, I mean, I agree in the, in the sense that there's printing of money and there's growing anxiety over, you know, the future value of a fiat currency. I mean, I completely agree with that. But um, I, think, I think there's debate and argument of how much purchasing power is cash really losing. And I personally have, like, if you look at history, the past 10 years, I, I just don't see how you can make a case that cash is losing more than a few percent of its purchasing power per year. I mean, assets will naturally grow faster than cash. Like think about it, real estate, stocks, equity, right? These are companies building products. And so obviously they will have a higher appreciation than cash. And so, you know, even, I mean, and then we've had a historic bull run since, you know, the, the crash in 2009, et cetera. It's been one of the best, you know, decades for, for stocks as well. And so I don't know if we can count all of that and say, okay, cash is, you know, the purchasing power of cash is decreasing because look at, you know, stocks are increasing or real estate is increasing. But real estate didn't even double the national house price. So I'm just confused in terms over 10 years. So I'm just confused in terms of, is it fear of cash losing power in the future and kind of like the, the government intervention of printing money that's causing maybe this, this, this forecast of, you know, cash losing immense amounts of purchasing power thus creating this urgency to do something about it like that's kind of what it feels like to me i don't know what's your take yeah for sure and i think it's less about what has happened more about me predicting this that couple percent will accelerate and and just preparing for it and i think that's kind of the thing that i, I just see it kind of increasing dramatically 
Um, or I'm trying, I had something to say about the, um, oh, yeah, so I think, you know, going forward, I think it accelerates. So that's why I think we haven't seen it in the data. It's just that kind of FOMO. And I think the other thing that I, I am really struggling with is like bonds and you know, like it's like negative interest rates to me makes absolutely no sense. You have to pay someone to take your capital essentially. Um, so it's like that to me is a huge signal that demand for fiat is like really, really weak. And like the US government, like we're not getting any returns on our bonds. Like you buy a bond with this return, it's like permanently diluting you. And the entire way we have to fund everything is by keep selling bonds to just pay off our debts. Like to me, that system is breaking. And the second it starts to break more, like the like this core inflation rate and the prices going up of everything is the last thing that drops. You know, it's, it's kind of the last catalyst after everything's broken. We start to see that happen. And so I think I haven't seen the runaway inflation ever until yeah. this year because i and i feel like it's not being counted well but when i look at stock prices when i look at like food prices when i go to the grocery store like i feel like there is a huge kind of quiet inflation occurring just from my anecdotal evidence and to me that is the start so i've seen this quiet anecdotal inflation and i feel the fiat i feel it's printing more so i think that 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 inflation kind of purchasing power erosion is going to accelerate mm -hmm. so that's the prop bet i'm making is uh, you know, when, I, when I'm on Bitcoin and why I think Tesla should do it, it's like we want to get ahead of this fiat purchasing power, you know, acceleration of erosion and value. And it, but it's just a guess. You know, I'm speculating. Got it. Yeah. Like, OK, so here's another kind of uh, angle of critique of it. So back in the day, let's say you look at past 10 or 20 years, there's always been a camp of, let's say, doomsayers, sayers, or doomsayers where they're like, everything's going to fall apart, et cetera. And you've had this camp in the financial circles of, holding gold, right? They're like big gold fans, right? And kind of waiting for the pending doom of the economy, et cetera. And this is like every generation has, you know, these circles. And it feels like in some ways, some of these doomsayers like um, gold folks have started to move into Bitcoin over the past five years where I'm getting the same messaging that I've heard over 10 or 20 years where it's like, you know, this mistrust of the government, you know, this, this, this crazy ap 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 apocalyptic feature of, you know, everything raveling apart, this whole thing of needing insurance. I've, I've heard this so many times over the years, like you need gold, that's your insurance because everything's going to fall apart, right? And this like fear of it and saying gold is the best investment because, you know, cash is trash, et cetera. And I feel like all of this is moving over. When I look at it, I'm like, if feels like in a sense a lot of fear going on and and it feels like it's growing because the government is printing money like where's all this stimulus money coming from right our debt is growing etc um and so i don't want to discount it completely i don't want to say like hey this isn't important because it could be um, a real risk ahead but i am concerned because i feel like just like the fear has driven some people to hold gold only over the years they miss out on perhaps the bigger innovation at hand, the bigger trends at hand. I mean, we're talking about, hey, we're in the middle of a huge you know, cycle of innovation, a huge era of, of massive transformation. And I feel like, hey, like, that's a great investment there. you know. And for people to be so scared that they feel like all their cash is going, out, going down the money and are going down the drain, and they need to put a bunch of money into Bitcoin as like safety or insurance, it kind of feels like a little bit missing the point a bit. I don't know. What's your take? 
you know, I, I, I see the gold. I never bought into the gold bugs either, but I get why they're there. Like, I think it's really important to have an inflation hedge and like all these bu buckets of assets or different theories of ideolo ideologies of how the future will unfold. So to me, there's always a percentage of the financial system that goes in this inflation hedge. Like, and it's a really important thing. And I think governments would be way less. You know, we were on the gold standard. I think we'd be way printing way more if there wasn't G checks on the financial system like gold. And for as much as that we hate on the gold people, like gold is actually done pretty well. So I can't hate on them too much, but I, so I see on one hand, like there is this kind of reason to have this inflation hedge. And I think Bitcoin is much better at it. So I think it's going to disrupt gold and kind of take that place of these apocalyptic naysayers who always do have a valid point. But then I look at that kind of apocalyptic store of value asset as being more important than ever because of the accelerating dilution of fiat. We can handle a certain amount of dilution, but to me, it feels like it's gotten out of hand. And that's when this G check of an inflation hedge asset becomes more and more relevant in terms of the financial system. So that's why my analysis is like gold sucks. You can't carry it yourself. You can't divide it. It's super expensive to ship, yet it still has $7 trillion because we are so desperate to financial productize ways to get into gold to make it that inflation hedge asset. So. I think Bitcoin is going to fulfill that mark. And that's why I'm so bullish at 400, 500 billion, because I'm like, dude, I think this is, you know, eight to 10 trillion just replacing gold. We don't need to fix this whole fiat system. And that's still a huge upside. Um, but I think the other thing is like, you know, people like myself have owned bit like I haven't owned any cash. And I've been making, you know, I funded my entire YouTube channel bootstrap with Bitcoin profits because I had the theory that this would be a better store of value than fiat. And so my question is, how many years is Bitcoin going to compound at 100 percent relative to fiat? And people like me are just going to be, you know, our capital's compounding at like mind boggling rates because we bet on this. So in some ways, like I hear what you're saying about this kind of doomsday apocalypse thing always there. But I'm also like those people, the Bitcoin people who have been saying that have been right and have outperformed every single other asset on the planet thus far. And so I see Bitcoin as like, OK, I'm not going to judge whether it's dope or not. I just want to yeah. look at the data and see what's happening. And I'm seeing sure tens of millions of accounts. I'm seeing it moving trillions of dollars per year. It just grassroots, despite being decentralized, despite being this wild west thing, has accrued, is, is you know, uh, currency's value is its utility. To me, Bitcoin's utility is through the roof. I can move, it's cheaper, faster, easier to move it to more people than it ever has been before. Those are all just increasing and getting better. So I think you're right about the economy, innovation, the net, value, net present value priced in a true unit is increasing radically for for humanity you know and therefore the amount of value in the currency in theory should go up and so i i totally get where that's coming from but i see bitcoin as accruing a lot of the store of value of the economy of the simulation because people realize that even if we agree that fiat's getting diluted at two percent you know bitcoin's not and that's already kind of structurally a better move so i just think we're on this and i don't know if it's bitcoin but the reason why i love it and i'm a fan is because we have the conversation now of like it's not just everybody open a savings account and keep your your fiat in it which has been the status quo and i think the fractional reserve system i think you know the way that we've just been kind of diluted and everyone's quietly getting diluted more and more every year the u.s deficit goes up and up we're printing more money like it's, it's reached a tipping point where the irresponsibility of governments, and you look at every third party government in the world, that's not the US or Europe, their, their currency is totally unstable. It's a total joke compared to Bitcoin. So I see the technology of Bitcoin as just fundamentally as, a, as an innovator, software based, you can plug it in, it can't be diluted. This is just a better way to store value in the digital economy than holding it into fiat. And so that's what I call the awakening is we'll just, yeah, that whole pie is increasing. But while that pie is increasing, we'll have it leaching from fiat to, to other assets that are better, whether they're. And to me, I see Bitcoin as the leading cryptocurrency. Um, and actually another, this is kind of a total tangent, but one of my friends, shout out to Alex, was talking to me about ETH 
versus ETH Classic. So he's a big believer in uh, Ethereum Classic. But what happened is they kept getting 51% attacked. And why was that a problem? Because you're running on the ETH network, you have all these servers running a 10 times bigger network. Of course, you can 51% attack with basically the same algorithm, a way smaller network. So Bitcoin is the reverse property and why it made so hard to hack because you'd have to literally create a Bitcoin. Anyone that tries to create Bitcoin, all the miners can hack and kill instantly because their mining power is so much greater. And so to me, Bitcoin has had this runaway effect of being institutionalized, integrated with tech companies, kind of just being the first mover and getting swept up in this psychology of it being the new digital gold store value asset. And I love what Elon said. BTC sucks, but it sucks less than fiat. And that's kind of what I keep coming down to. And so I just think more people will have this ideology of like, let I want to store my money in something that I really think through and kind of uh-huh. think we'll store my value better than fiat. And that's, and that's where the, this like millennial demand for Bitcoin kind of comes. Personally, when I look at Bitcoin, I look at it, okay, what's the, the value that Bitcoin gives its users? Like what is the valuation of Bitcoin kind of founded on? I think we have uh, two things going on. One is you have this concept of a store of value that's kind of keeping certain assets safe, protected from inflation. And then you have this second value proposition of being able to transfer money or transfer value, right, from any two points of the world without the restriction of banks and governments, et cetera. And so when I look at these two things, what I look at is first on the store value, I feel like it's very volatile in the sense that Bitcoin's valuation, a lot of it is determined on the future adoption or projected adoption of Bitcoin. Meaning if everyone in the world, 10 years down the road, people think are gonna be using Bitcoin, then Bitcoin's going to the roof. But if, 10, if right now people think 10 years down the road, no one's gonna use Bitcoin, then it's gonna sink to the ground. Meaning that a lot of the valuation is based on the projected usage, right? And adoption of Bitcoin. Um, and that changes. And that's why Bitcoin has a volatility is because people's projection of or view of future Bitcoin adoption changes over time, right? And so in that sense, I'm not necessarily saying ne- the volatility is negative. I'm just saying it's a necessary part of an asset that's so, like the future is so in flux. We don't know what Bitcoin is going to look like 10 years from now. Therefore, that is inherently part of its price fluctuation, right? And so, I mean, that's not necessarily a negative thing. All growth stocks will have that fluctuation and volatility too. But what is the risk is, what if the demand for the product, demand for Bitcoin somehow unexpectedly starts to go down over time, you could see a very fast and nasty spiral down. And like, personally, I think short-term wise over the next, let's say year or two, like it looks pretty strong. You have you have institutions, you have companies, you have people jumping on the bandwagon. It feel it looks like short-term price-wise, like next year or two seems pretty strong. But do we really know the demand for Bitcoin in two years? Like, like it's all probabilities, right? You might think okay, that. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go for but it. But do we know the demand for dollars? And my bet is the perception of demand for dollars goes down, and perception of demand for Bitcoin goes up. So that's that's where my kind of crux of this lies is people assume that you know, this currency is this no brainer. To me, when you have the currency, you're speculating on a $300 trillion asset class for maintaining 300 trillion of value. Bitcoin, we're speculating on a $400 billion asset. You know, it doesn't need that much adoption to go way, way up. So to me, fiat is priced perfection. When I see at least a 1% chance that it's unraveling, actually like a 20 to 40 to 50% chance it's unraveling. So that's why I get, and I think Michael Saylor makes such a poignant point of 
fiat, we are buying in at such a high valuation with so many expectations priced in about how relevant this will stay in the future, that that is why I believe fiat is, is an equally as speculative choice as Bitcoin right now, just because of how much is priced into it. Well, you know, does that kind of make sense? Yeah, no, I totally get it. Like in a sense of, you know, especially people who have a view that let's say governments are incredibly, let's say on, 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 um, rocky ground or on a very unstable place, let's say, and they might be forced to print, you know, trillions and trillions of more dollars and the stability of, let's say, fiat is at risk, right? Like I could see if you take it from that angle and you are somewhat, let's say, go down that hole even more, then you could say, oh my gosh, like we need some type of solution to, you know, just holding something in cash, right? You, But my problem with that is once you get into that hole, you just want like, to me, it's more of a, like, why don't you just hold, like, a better store value would be, for example, the S&P 500. If you're scared of inflation, just like S&P 500, like, that's inflation hedge, right? I mean, it's great. It's more stable. It, these are companies, the best companies in the world. You have a stability about it. Like, if you want insurance, just go with S&P 500, it feels like. Bitcoin, in a way, it feels like there is uncertainty. There, it's not foolproof, you know, meaning which in terms of where Bitcoin is in 10 years versus S&P 500 in 10 years, there is a stability to the S&P 500, you know, because it's based upon companies and products and services. Bitcoin, things have to go right, I think, for Bitcoin in 10 years to, you know, for it to have, like, to me, to, to, to look at Bitcoin on the same level of stability and future, let's say, future proofness, to me, that's, that's an illusion. Like, S&P 500 is far more, you know, uh, future proof. I mean, what are your thoughts with that? past performance is not an indicator of future results is kind of like, I, I feel like I'm taking the radical side and I'm probably too early, but I just deep down, I'm like, yeah, like all the S and P's priced in fiat, they're all making money in fiat. They're all not moving to Bitcoin fast enough. I think Bitcoin just accrues and has at a much higher compounded rate and S and P priced in Bitcoin will decline dramatically. And so, and I think the volatility of Bitcoin to, to bring it back to that is decreasing dramatically. So it's already more like less volatile. If you take out the upwards volatility too, like, you know, to go from zero to 10 trillion as an asset, we need a lot of upwards volatility. Um, it's already more stable than third party countries and or third, you know, whatever currencies, I guess. And so I think that volatility will decrease over time. But yeah, and I think, you know, that's kind of my thing is like, it's it's such a, it's a little too early. Like we don't have the history of Bitcoin. It's too risky. Hacks could still happen. You know, you don't have 150 years of performance with the S&P. We don't have 400 years of history with the dollar. And so it's ideologically very hard to assume that that. But to me, I just keep coming back down to the fact that that priced in success. It's like why Exxon stock was way too high for too long because all people like my grandma were counting on the dividend. Shout out to Grammy. She sold her Exxon stock. But, you know, like they were it just was inflated because of this dividend price and this it, it had been a dividend aristocrat. And so I'm really trying to not fall into just that thing of like just because it has done well, it will. And even when I get down to that, it's like Bitcoin has actually crushed all of these strategies since it exists. Obviously, that's kind of a weird I feel like cheating thing, that yeah. argument sometimes. But like uh I don't know. I just think, and that's kind of why I keep coming down to the 1% thing. Cause it's not like I'm saying put all our cash into it. It's like, let's just have a foot on our door in this future. That to me, I think is a lot more than 1% likely. And like probably deep down, I think it's too much of a pain in the ass for Elon and Tesla to actually do it unless they could just accept payment in Bitcoin and leave it. But deep down, I think this will become the norm and I won't become radical, but there'll be 
you know, S&P cash, Bitcoin, Bitcoin will really be a part of that conversation going forward. And that's why I was pounding the table of like, let's start thinking about this now, Tesla. We need to be ahead of the curve. Let's not be late to the Bitcoin treasury game. Let's be early if there is going to be a Bitcoin treasury game. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I mean, my, I have some other concerns with Tesla and Bitcoin. One is like energy usage. Like you have Bitcoin network using probably like the latest estimates on the annual run rate is like what, 88 terawatt hours of energy. It's like insane the amount of energy used to try to secure the Bitcoin network. And I feel like, sure, you can have these elaborate arguments of, oh, a lot of that power is excess power in China used from hydroelectric, et cetera. But if you look at the, the facts, it's not completely 100% true. I mean, this is power, it's, it's energy. And um, if you believe in, let's say, for example, that network and it's, and then you compare it to, let's say, Visa or MasterCard, there's all these arguments of, oh, maybe it's not that inefficient, but, I think in a lot of ways, Bitcoin is not really used as like a medium of exchange. It, we're not talking about millions of billions of purchases of goods and services. A lot of it is, I think, trading, you know, people just trading back and forth. And it's an immense amount of energy that's used. And then the second thing is you have all these 50,000 plus employees of Tesla. Once Bitcoin, once Tesla takes out on a position with Bitcoin, this is going to be the biggest thing in the Bitcoin world where you know, it's going to be everywhere and everyone's going to be hounding every Tesla employee, their friends and family saying, should I buy Bitcoin? Now, every employee of Tesla is forced to become like an advocate of Bitcoin, trying to explain, you know, why Tesla has invested in Bitcoin and they have to become like, and it's just a distraction. Like it doesn't yeah. even match the ethos I and the mission of Tesla. You know, it's like, I don't know if it's worth it. I, that's that's to me where it's to me I keep coming at it's too much of a pain in the ass exactly for reason like that for them to do it but is it your fiduciary duty if we have 20 billion on the balance sheet to figure out our best store of value for those assets yes and so that's where it kind of has to be a part of the conversation but in terms of the uh, the energy usage thing so dollar move, dollar move per transaction on the Bitcoin network like transactions on the network have been flat for three years because the average transaction volume is going up so that this is what I call the stagnation fallacy the actual emissions per dollar moved on the network is dropping dramatically and will continue to do so and yes it uses a ton of energy but it's also going to replace a financial system that uses a huge amount of energy as well how many buildings are there on Wall Street how many banks do we have in every neighborhood how much energy they are using how many receipts do we print how much mail does my bank send me like how many they're keeping the lights on every day like i think there's a huge cost of energy that goes into the current financial system that bitcoin is replacing so i have not fully wrapped my head around this because i think this is the biggest like my biggest beef with bitcoin's the energy consumption but it's also the reason why it can't be hacked and why it's unstoppable is because you would need so much energy to get enough hash power to overtake the network that it also prices in this level of stability in the currency and someone one of my friends was saying bitcoin is like the global spot price on energy so they, it's like this incredible way to think about it. So on one hand, I wish it consumed less, um, but it's also replacing a system that uses a lot of fossil fuels. The amount of, of emissions per dollar move is dropping incredibly quickly and will continue to do so. And just as humans, we need to dedicate a huge amount of resources to an efficient store of value technology. And that's why we have so many banks. That's why we have Manhattan built on Wall Street. That's why we have bank corners everywhere. Like this is an important piece of the economy. So this is probably the biggest thing that I'm thinking about constantly, though, is how do we how do I marry my world of the future needs to be sustainable, but also we need to have a product where everybody can have financial access. We're going to put Starlink. Everyone's going to have Internet. All these people in third world countries can buy Bitcoin. It's a way better buy than their shitty third world currency. So to me, that's a really empowering thing for a lot of billions of people. It could do really good for the world in some ways. And so I'm kind of constantly torn between reducing our energy consumption, making us be sustainable, but also this vision of Bitcoin 
which in some ways is a beautiful kind of technology utopia. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I, I get it. And I, I totally get the, the Bitcoin bull case. Um, and it's fascinating to me. I, I love, I love the, the implications and the significance of Bitcoin. I think it's still underrated in what it's trying to do. Um, amazing how far it's come. And um, yeah, definitely uh, appreciate the conversation, Kelly. Um, just want to thank you for joining um, me on this show and wish you the best for the holidays and the next year. Yeah, happy holidays. And I love uh, going back and forth because we have different opinions. I think yeah. it's fascinating. So I love hearing your take on it. Thanks for having me on. Awesome, man. Kelly, take care. Talk to you later. Happy holidays. Okay. Bye. All right, bye.